Okay, good afternoon, City Bible Church. It's so good to see you guys here. Uh, I know there's people that are on vacation right now, and we'll just say other people that are under the weather right now as well. And so we'll keep them uh, in our prayers. We care about uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we miss them, but trust that they'll be with us uh, in the not-too-distant future. I I was talking with Alice before the service, and she said that... uh, Paul is feeling better now, so thank you. Yes, yes, yes. She's very happy. I can tell you're smiling. Look at that fist pump, Alice. Um, and uh, those of you guys who prayed for him, I know, uh, I think we gave him a care package this week, as well as um, contacted him. So uh, thank you for that. Today, as we continue on in our series in Philippians, the theme of Philippians is joy, and how we can have joy in our Christian walk how can we, rejo- we rejoice in the Lord amidst a fallen and dark world? And so today we're going to go on to uh, our next uh, passage in Philippians. And that is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. That is our next passage as we teach through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. And as you're turning there, uh, we're going to look at three things that the Apostle Paul is focusing on in these uh, five or so verses. And the first thing he's going to talk about, the importance of imitating others who follow Christ. That uh, how we grow, how we mature as followers of Christ, largely comes from us imitating others who are following Christ. Number two, he's going to give us a reminder and a warning of those who, unbelievers who uh, are enemies of Christ, have no interest in the things of God, and he's going to give us a reminder of what their destiny is. And number three, uh, Paul is going to remind us of the importance of keeping our focus on the things of, uh, that are eternal, the things that, uh, where we will uh, receive our future resurrection bodies uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So very important today, what we're going to be looking at. And uh, I want to invite you to stand now as we read God's word together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. Paul writes this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lower body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we bow down before you as Lord and Savior, as our tongues confess, as our knees bow. Um, Lord, we, we know that you will bring um, all things to their rightful conclusion. We know that you will renew things, all things, and make them right in the end. We know that uh, until that time comes, we are to be the church, looking to one another to imitate each other in the best of what it means to follow Christ. We know that we are here to be reminded that many will miss the narrow path and and the hard way of Jesus Christ and whose end will be destruction. But we thank you that we who believe are not counted among those, but that our citizenship is in heaven. So help us to to, uh, be greatly encouraged by that. Help us to be a church that spurs one another on towards love and good deeds today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you. So let's take a look at this passage. Three important reminders for us in the faith. And um, we start off in verse 17 here. We're going to focus on that first. And in verse 17, he says, Brothers. Uh, Let's stop there. Brothers. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the Philippian church. And just by way of reminder, this is, uh, this is uh, Paul's writing to the Philippians 
Somewhere around 61 AD, 61 AD is when he's writing this Philippian let, Philippians letter. And he's writing in Rome. He's living in a house. He's under house arrest. He's there for about two years. And he writes what's called the prison epistles during that time. Philippians is one of them. But uh, when he says brothers in verse 17, it really means two things. Number one, it means my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are all one family of God when he says brothers. But secondly, he's, this is also a term of endearment for Paul, because as he's writing this in 61 AD, uh, he has known the Philippian church for somewhere around 10 years by this point. Now, as you recall, on Paul's second missionary journey, in Acts 16, it was then that he crossed over from modern-day Turkey, took a boat westward, uh, landed in Acacia, and uh, the first place that really he ministered to uh, with any degree of impact was Philippi, and that's in northern Greece. And that happened about 10 years earlier than when he's writing this. Now, this is Acts 16, as you recall, he met a woman named Lydia, her friends, worshiping the Lord by the stream. He leads them to Christ, baptizes them, and then uses Lydia's house as a, as a base of operations. Maybe Paul is in Philippi for about three months or so, and during that time he leads people to Christ. He is persecuted. Him and Silas, according to Acts 16, are thrown into a jail, which is probably just a carve-out you know, hole in a rock wall put in chains, they were whipped, beaten, and the Lord miraculously delivers them from there, and they leave. But uh, it was during this 10 years, and you can go back uh, to Acts chapter 20, that Paul, in Acts 20, then passed through Macedonia, to uh, pass through uh, Philippi, that area, twice. So now when he writes this to the Philippian church, and he says brothers in verse 17, it's not just brothers and sisters in the faith, he is also thinking back over 10 years. I started this church. I ministered among you. I passed by there at least two times. And in the future, he will also be passing by Philippi for a third time. That's recorded in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So this is a church that Paul was very proud of. Church that he led people to Christ. That he helped start. And uh, he, was, he, he really cared about uh, this congregation, as it should be when you have a leader, um, a shepherd, an elders in a church. They should be able to call you brothers and brothers and sisters in Christ, not just theologically, but because we do life together, right? I mean, you just, and, and I'm really proud about that at our church, is that in our leaders here, we're not just, um, I speak, and then, you know, at the end, I disappear behind a curtain, and uh, if you want to talk to me, you have to schedule an appointment with my secretary. Um, many of you, you have my phone number. You text me. I call you at all hours of the night, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's something beautiful about that, about the family of God being actually lived out uh, in practicality and not just theologically. But he says this in verse 17, Brothers, uh, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those, those in the church of Philippi, who walk according to the example you have in us. So what is Paul saying at this point in verse 17? He is saying, Philippian church... I was with you. When I was with you, I was modeling for you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. When I, Paul, was with you. Now, he's saying two things at this point. I'm not with you anymore, but, number one, remember my example that I gave you of what it means to follow Jesus Christ and imitate that. Number two, look around in your congregation for other people who are, who are following my example as I follow Jesus Christ. So he's saying two things. Follow my example as I followed Christ, and secondly, follow the example of other people in the congregation who are following my example as I followed Christ. He's talking about the importance in the Christian faith of imitation. The importance in the Christian faith of following the example of other Christians, if you're here today and believe 
that uh, the only the the really the only way you grow as a Christian is simply by reading God's word or praying on your own. You will never become a mature Christian. Is it important to read the Bible? Yes. Is it important to pray? Yes. However, you cannot escape uh, all the teaching, all the examples throughout Scripture that call us to imitate the actions, the behaviors, the teachings of other Christians that are following Christ. If you're not in community with other Christians, you cannot imitate them. You cannot grow as a Christian. If you're out there and you're listening to sermons on YouTube, podcasts, you're reading a book by someone, that is very, very helpful. Okay, I do that too. We learn from other Christians through books, videos, podcasts, etc. That's important. However, uh, you're gaining knowledge, but you have no relationship with these people. They don't even know your name. You don't know them. You can find the best speaker you can find on, on media, and you have no idea what their life is like because you're not in community with them. You're just listening to their teaching, which is fine. Uh, so you can't really imitate their life. You can just learn from their teaching. And this is one of the great downfalls of people who say, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't have to be part of a church. I can just be a Christian, one, and two, just go do good in the world. And they miss it. Because can you come to faith, you know, in your own bedroom praying? Yes, you can. But you can't grow as a Christian unless you're in community with other Christians. Why? It's because you need to see from imperfect people, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And you don't need to be around perfect Christians. It's actually sometimes more of a discouragement. You should actually be around Christians who are imperfect, but growing. Let me say that again. Christians who are growing in their faith, but who are imperfect. Because we all know that we're not perfect. And so you want to see how that's being lived out uh, in maturity, in perfect maturity. Uh, that's what Paul was, right? How great Paul was, but there was times when he lost his temper with people. And he had to apologize, even for Paul. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, uh, it says in 2 Corinthians, because he had so much pride. That was Paul. So he was a growing super-Christian, but he was also imperfect, right? Imitation. Very important. We all know, we, we all experience that in our life. Um, you see the importance of imitation just in culture, in our world. How many of you are just imitating other people and saying, this weekend, I had to see Top Gun. This weekend, I had to watch Obi-Wan. I had to do it. Because it wasn't just because of what I was seeing. I talked to other people. They said, I, they go see it. I should go see it. I'm going to imitate it. Of course we do that, right? We just we do that in culture. How many of us, our fashion choices are almost dictated to us by what we see other people wearing, what we other pe- people do, where we go out to eat? I'm going to copy you because I'm going to imitate. So we see this in culture. We imitate that just in normal. You don't even have to be a Christian for that. We see imitation in culture. We see imitation in the relationship between parents and children. Okay, and, and that happens on two levels with parents and children. Number one, it goes upwards and it goes downwards. So myself, I have found, probably for many of you as well, the older I've gotten, the more, and I'm not even choosing to do this. It just kind of comes up. I've noticed these mannerisms that are just like my father or just like my mother. And I'm not intentionally trying to be that way, but how I react to certain situations. And Lorraine will point that out sometimes, and sometimes I'll just catch myself and go, that was just like my dad. Uh, that's how he reacted. And, and, you know, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, right? Um, and so I find that I, I, there, I'm just imitating aspects of my father, mannerisms, but it also goes downwards, right? You look at your children, for those of you that have children, how much of our children's behavior just imitates us? They start to like what we like. You know, our hobbies become theirs. Um, their, our idols become theirs. You know, um, 
I can be messy in my home, and I see that in some of my children, not all of them. And, um, and so I can't really rebuke them because, you know, I'm like doing the same thing, and so I got to change my ways. Well, I said imperfect Christians, right? So you see that with parents, imitation, children, imitation, you see in culture. You also see that in church. There's just this spiritual dynamic that happens that when you're part of a church, and this happens at any church you're a part of, you walk in the door, you commit to a community of believers, and what happens to you? You start entering into a journey with a community of faith where you start to look around, maybe at the senior pastor, but maybe at other leaders, and over time, whether you like it or not, you start to get shaped spiritually because you start to imitate what other people are doing in that church. And sometimes that's very positive. That can also be very negative. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he put it this way. He said, a disciple, when he is fully trained, becomes like his teacher. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, if you're part of this church, um, you will hear uh, when we're teaching up here what I care about, what I'm passionate about. You'll hear a certain commitment to the scriptures. And that will start to influence you, hopefully for the good, obviously. That happens at any church. Uh, it happens in a healthy church. It happens in a cult. Okay? So um, you want, that's why you want to choose wisely when it comes to that. Imitating others. Jesus did this when he was talking about the importance of imitation of the Christian faith. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls the disciples to himself by simply saying, follow me. He didn't say, just read what I've written. He didn't say, go listen to what other people say about me. He didn't say, go do all these miracles that, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that Moses did. He said, I'm here. And you see me. I'm going to go this way. I want you to simply follow me. You, know, you can be a fisherman. Okay? You can be a tax collector. You can be whoever. All I'm asking is that you just imitate me. Just follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do. Learn what I have to teach you. That's it. This is important to Jesus, the importance of imitation of Christian faith. Paul, uh, this was central to how Paul made disciples. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, be imitators of me, Corinthians. Imitate me. As I, as Paul, imitate Christ. All you have to do is look at my life. Just imitate the things that you see in my life that are following Christ. Don't imitate the areas that are not. You know, um, that, and I say the same thing to you as a pastor. The longer you get to know me, it, it, it probably won't take you that long. There's, there's many areas in my life, not pastoral disqualifying areas, but just human areas that you don't want to imitate. Okay. Um, but there's a lot that actually you probably should. And, um, but that's why it's important to be part of a church, right? Is because you don't want to just be looking at me and making me the sole definition of what it means to be a Christian, obviously. What you want to do is say, I need to find a church where I can look at the leadership, the elders of a church, and say, there's enough there for me to respect, imitate, follow, etc., knowing, though, they're not these perfect human beings. And so, therefore, the rest of the community will start to fill in the gaps of what I need. Some are an eye, some are an ear, some are a foot, etc. 1 Corinthians 12. So Paul said this, he said to the Thessalonian church, he's talking about the importance of imitation in the Christian faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, you, Thessalonians, became imitators of me and the Lord. In fact, you, you, as, you as a church, Thessalonians, you imitated the churches in Judea. He says that to the uh, Thessalonian church. He said, you received the word with much affliction in joy of the Holy Spirit. So just as I have suffered as Paul and receive the word in the Holy Spirit, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, so you are doing in your own affliction, because you've seen me model that for you. He said to the Thessalonian church again in 2 Thessalonians this time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
he said to them, you know how you ought to imitate us because we, that's Paul, were not idle among you. Remember when Paul was at the Thessalonian church and he planted that church too, um, he was working hard. So he says he didn't take the money. He, he worked as a tent maker. And why? Because he didn't want to be open to the accusation that he was just doing ministry for the money. And so, and he also saw uh, some Thessalonians that were idle. They weren't doing anything with their life. They weren't growing spiritually. And they said, I want to model for you what it means to not be idle and to be zealous for the things of the Lord. A um, couple more. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 says that we should imitate our spiritual leaders. And he says again, and uh, he goes on to say in, first, uh, in that same chapter, in that same verse, imitate your leaders, number one, who spoke the word of God to you, and number two, consider their outcome of life. That's how you determine uh, what type of spiritual leader to follow, by the way. Hebrews 13. Are they teaching you the word of God? Number one. And number two, um, when you look at the outcome of their life, their devotion to the Lord, their devotion to the things of God, their devotion to their family, um, is, is that, is that uh, something to approve of? And finally, in 3 John, the epistle of 3 John, uh, John says, do not imitate evil, the evil of people who are unbelievers, but imitate the good of people who know God. Okay? So uh, this is very important, imitation. Imitation of the Christian faith. I'm going to tell you the short story I heard this week. This week I was in a conference out in Ventura. I have to go to this conference once a year for our denomination. And um, I've had a few interactions with the denominational president over the years. Um, it was really cool. He actually expressed interest in the books that I've written. Um, he actually said, send it to me and I'll write you a, you know, a favorable review, which I was like, well, you should read it first. <laughs> but I think you'll still like it. Um, and uh, so I, I got a couple minutes talking with him during the break. And um, I really like him. He's, got, he's a good man with a good heart. He's a really good speaker. Uh, I read a lot of his blog posts and just very impressed with this man. And, uh, but he, he went up there at the end of the conference and he told us a brief story. And I'll just summarize it for you. He talked about a time, and this story has to do with the importance of imitation in the Christian faith. He said there was a time in his pastor where he was pastoring a church, and it, it sounded like it was some, almost like some church in the country. Okay, because he talked about these guys that he went to who were like in the woods or something like that. And uh, there's one, one guy that he had led to Christ was a guy named Mike. And he, and he said Mike didn't have much of an education. He was living in, the, in some kind of forest area. But he led him to Christ. And, and this president, uh, this pastor president, uh, his name is Steve. Okay? So Steve came to Mike, led him to, Mike to Christ. And uh, Steve said, okay, I'm going to disciple Mike. And so Steve, the pastor, had these little booklets on how to grow as a Christian, right? It's kind of, you've seen them before. You, 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 you do this booklet with fill in the blank, read a verse. Okay, God is what? All-powerful. Let's write that word, all-powerful. Okay, so he goes through these booklets, um, and that's how he's discipling him. And he went through these booklets. They were done. And at the end of it, um, you know, Steve didn't know what to do at that point because he's like, I don't have any more booklets. How do I disciple you? How do you make a, uh, this person into a follower of Jesus Christ? And Mike was like a blank slate, Steve said. Uh, in fact, Mike saw this old movie. It was called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I think it came in the 1970s, okay? And Mike saw it, and he came to Steve, and he said, Steve, did, did you realize that Judas Iscariot was the bad guy? There's this bad guy named Judas, and he was a bad guy. Did you even realize that was in the Bible? He's like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're right, right on. Like, keep watching. And so um, that's who Mike was, right? And um, so Steve didn't know what to do with Mike after they went through the booklet. So Mike came to Steve, and he said, you know what? Can we just do this? And this was Mike's idea. He goes, can I just follow you around? Can I just, you know, I, I see you doing these things. I don't get it, but can I just copy you? All right, can I just follow you around? And so, yeah, Steve's so like, yeah. So he would pick him up. They'd go do ministry together, go visit people, etc. And Mike would be like, wait, you know, when you prayed for that guy, Steve, and you put your hand on his shoulder, why did you do that? Right? So he's just asking questions, just imitating what Steve was doing. Well, after a period of time, uh, there came a, uh, some, some time later where Mike got into some health issues. He was taking 20 Advil a day, 
to alleviate his pain. Went to the doctor. They couldn't figure it out. They said, we're going to do an exploratory surgery on you, Mike. Had to go to like a different state. Steve said, I'm going to go with you. Uh, Mike's family went. Steve went. Uh, they go the day of the surgery. And Mike turns to Steve and he says, um, the Lord has revealed to me that on this day, my mother will be very sad, but I will be very happy. They went into the surgery. It was supposed to be four hours long. Doctor came out 20 minutes into the surgery and said, you guys need to be sit down. Mike is gone. He's, he's passed away. Like, what happened? Doctor said, we opened up his chest, looked at his heart. We found a huge tumor the size of like a, a grapefruit next to his heart. We lifted up the tumor, and as we lifted up, his heart split in half, and he's gone. Uh, and Mike was right. You know, his mother was very sad that day, but he was happy because he was with the Lord. Steve did the funeral. And, you know, I guess in, I've done these kind of funerals before where you have a time of open sharing. They literally have open mic sharing. Does anyone want to say anything about the deceased? And, um, and so they did that. Steve did that, and he was listening, and one, one woman come up, came up, and she was like, I work at the convalescent home that Mike used to come to every week to preach at. And it was listening to his preaching to the convalescents that I rededicated my life to Christ. And Steve is there going, what? Mike did that? How long did he do that? He's like, he's doing that every week. And the convalescent woman was saying, yeah, or the worker was saying, yeah. Another person comes to the chair and says, I'm from the prison that Mike used to preach at. Not the other prison that he preached at on Tuesdays. I'm from the prison that he preached at on Thursdays. And she's like, what? You, he, he had no idea this went on after Steve had discipled him, you know? And um, so Steve's point was this. He said, you know what? I was doing all this stuff, going through these booklets, and, you know, that's important. But in the end, the Lord did something through Mike I had, I had no idea with. And a lot of that was simply Mike took the initiative to say, can I just follow you, imitate you? And, he, he, you know, the Lord was teaching Mike through just imitating Steve. And he says, sometimes we make discipleship so complex. Oh, I need to know this you know, the systematic book of theology. I need, what if they ask me a question I don't know? I don't feel confident. And Steve was like, don't, don't do any of that stuff, okay? Just invite people to learn what you're learning and to do what you're doing as you follow Christ. Anyone can do that, okay? And that's really what Paul is saying here when he's saying, imitate me. Um, just... Invite people, say, learn what I'm learning. What, what, what Christian book are you reading? Invite other people to read it with you. Uh, what, what ministry are you serving in? Invite others to serve with you, and then you'll, the Lord will reveal things in that process, and you'll be able to disciple people in live time. Okay. So, again, Paul is saying, imitate others. And there's an implicit contrast here. Because in Philippians chapter 1, he was actually warning the Philippian church and saying, there are some people who preach the gospel, and the gospel is correct, that's preached, but they have wrong motives. And so Paul would be saying, don't imitate those Christians who have the wrong motives, self-serving glory, but they're preaching the true gospel. He would also be implying in Philippians chapter 3 that there are other people that he warned about in Philippians chapter 3 that we looked at a few weeks ago that uh, say that you, in order to know God and, 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 and be saved, you have to do the works of Judaism. You have to get circumcised, uh, obey the dietary and ceremonial laws of the law. And so they were preaching a works gospel. Paul would say, do not imitate the Judaizers either. He called them dogs and evildoers. And in a moment... There's a third group, not just who's who are preaching the gospel with wrong motives, not those, only those who, secondly, were preaching the wrong gospel, gospel of works, like the Judaizers. But he, in chapter 4, which we'll get to in a moment, this verse, he says, um, basically, don't imitate the Gentiles who act shamelessly. All right, so Paul's saying, up until this point, imitate me, imitate others in the congregation, follow Christ. But there's other, a lot of others, he's saying, don't imitate them. And let me ask you a question. Who are you imitating? Who are you imitating in the Christian faith in order to grow in your faith? Who, what real life person that you know that knows your name 
are you imitating? Or are you inviting to imitate you? I think uh, in order to be a healthy Christian, you need to have people that you have in your life that you feel are more spiritually mature than you. What more spiritually mature person do you have in your life where when you look at their life, you can say, I can imitate. Uh, I like how they handled that situation. I like how they counseled that person. I like how they prayed for that person. I like what they're doing with their money. I like their zeal for the Lord. I like them serving, etc. What more spiritually mature person? And I'm not talking just about me, okay? Because I, I can't know all of you to that degree. You got to also be able to look at each other. And, and you should all be able to choose someone that's not me in this congregation that you can say, I'm imitating the way Nate does that, the way Jay does that, the way D'Amico does that, you know, etc. You need to have people more spiritually mature. And secondly, not just only people that are more spiritually mature than you, but you need to have people in your life that are peers that you can imitate. Spiritual peers, not pastors, not non-believers, but spiritual peers, other brothers and sisters in Christ that you're imitating. And here's how it works, by the way, with peers. There are times when you'll look, and again, you're not talking about pastors who are supposed to be more spiritually mature than you. You're not talking about unbelievers. You're talking about other Christians that are somewhere in the vicinity of where you're at in the faith. And how it works, it's kind of like there are times when your peers will be like this and you'll be catching up. And then there will be other areas of life where they'll be like this and you're catching up and it kind of goes like this and this at times. And that's really good and healthy because you should be able to look at certain people as a composite in this community and say, no one Christian has it all together. However, when I think about generosity, there are certain people in this, and I could name their names, who I think about, I need to be more like that person because I know how that generous that person is with their time, with their uh, resources. And then I think of other people who are very patient people. I need to be more patient. I think about them. I think about other people that are really committed to reading God's word. And I'm like, I need to be more like them. You know, I, I think of other people that are just a friend to everyone, Right. Um, and I go, man, I, I wish I could be more like that. And so that's the beauty of the church is no one person is all of those things. But as we look around, there's different areas that we can emulate in different people in the church. Right? And so very important. Who are we imitating? Who are we calling to imitate us? Let's go on. Verse 18 and 19. Um, now Paul gives a warning. He gives a warning. He says in verse 18 and 19, uh, he talks uh, to, uh, about some people that he, he's actually cried over. He's had tears about these people. Uh, these, these people he's about to warn the Philippian church yet again are people that he has warned them about uh, many times before. He says that in verse 18, often I've told you. And he says, these people walk, verse 18, as enemies of Christ. Enemies of Christ. So he's not talking about immature Christians. He's not talking about carnal Christians. Not, he's not talking about baby Christians when he says enemies of Christ. Uh, he is talking about unbelievers who are actively coming against God. And that's what he means by enemies of Christ. He is talking about false teachers. He is talking about people who just have, would just bring complete division to a church. He is talking about people who, when you contact with them, their sin, their evil spreads to other people like gangrene. These are the enemies of Christ. These are not struggling Christians. Um, and these are also not unbelievers who are saying, I've lived such a dark life, but I'm open. I'm open to hearing. He's not talking about them. He's talking about hardcore unbelievers who are steeped in their wickedness, enemies of Christ. And he says this in verse 19. He describes them. 
Number one, their end is destruction. Every unbeliever will end in destruction. Not This is not they'll just stop existing. Destruction is actually the idea that you will be destroyed by God's wrath eternally in eternal conscience torment in hell without Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Now, normally we would think about that as like gluttons, you know, uh, super foodies of the first century, right? Uh, but the idea here really is God, their God is their belly, has much more to do than with food. It has to do with an insatiable appetite. It has to do with sexual immorality, certainly gluttony, just a sense of lawless behavior. He says that uh, they glory in their shame. So their shameful behavior is not something they feel guilty about, not like, oh, I did it, oops, I did it again. It's they are really flaunting it. And lastly, he said their minds are set on earthly things, which are not godly things. In verse 18 and verse 19, I call these, uh, these enemies of Christ black hole unbelievers. Black hole unbelievers. What do we mean by black hole unbelievers? You know what a black hole is, right, in the galaxy. We may not be able to define all the science of it, but we know the basic concept. There's a star, it implodes, and it has such a gravitational pull inwards that they say in a black hole, not even light can escape it. It gets sucked into the middle and starts imploding inwards. Everything around it gets sucked into it, and eventually it explodes into a massive um, explosion. Just like there are black holes in the galaxy, there are black hole unbelievers. And this is what he's describing in verse 19. These are people who are so in need of the life of God, but have decided to reject God, that, and their heart has become hardened, and their mind is now gone, that they're just gasping, searching for life. These are the type of people who, if you get around black hole unbelievers, they will just suck all the life out of you because they're just so gasping for the life that they're not getting from God. These are the type of people that um, they will be unable or unwilling to break free from the idols that hold on to their heart. These are the people that will acknowledge God in one moment, but in the next moment completely live as if they never made that acknowledgement at all. These are the people that Paul talks about when he says um, that are tossed to and fro by every wind of cunning doctrine. These are the people that James talked about and says that are double-minded in all of their ways. These are the enemies of Christ. They're either unable or unwilling because the human soul is not spiritually neutral. Inside of the human soul, God has made you and I in such a way where we need spiritual life to come to us from outside of us. Let me say that again. We need spiritual life to come to us from outside of us. We are born spiritually dead in our sin. We need the spiritual life of God coming to us from outside, inside of us, through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that is why it's called eternal life. It is called eternal life, not just because it is life in eternity. It is, yes, it is that, but it is also called eternal life because you now have the unending source of life that you can experience, which is God right now. And so it is both. And um, I know it's easy to pick on the Hollywood industry, but uh, I'm going to give you two continuum extremes. And I'm sure, look, you can think of examples that are far worse than the two examples I'm going to give to you. But just because these were fairly recent, either I, that I saw anyway, um, you can have someone on this end of the continuum that says, I'm married, I have children, I'm in an open marriage where me and my wife can fool around, do whatever we want as long as we're committed to each other. We tell our kids you can be identify as a girl or a boy, no matter what your uh, gender assignment was at birth. 
Uh, we tell our kids that we have an open marriage and I can go up at the Academy Awards onto a stage and go physically assault someone. Okay. And then I can say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. That wasn't me. I feel, I feel bad about it. And so I can live this way and feel bad about a certain outburst, but I'm unwilling to change. I, I, I'm, I'm incapable of changing that. Why? Because I'm a black hole spiritual unbeliever. And because I can't help myself in the end. Because I'm gasping for life. And anything that gets in the way of that, um, I become a savage human being. You have other, whose mind is on, you have other people on the other end of the spectrum. Okay, And uh, there's a famous music artist right now, famous musician, and uh, does tours to packed stadiums. Um, if I said who this was, you all know exactly who this person was. And uh, they, they give a tour. They have songs. I was listening to one of the, their songs, and I just thought, you know, I'm going to look up about how this particular artist interprets this song at, you know, her own concert. And so I just watched a couple minutes of her own interpretation at her own tour on her own stage. And she's on stage singing a song where she's glorying in her shame. I just watched this like two weeks ago. Glorying in her shame about how she uh, had sexual relations with a married man and she got away with it. On the stage are these huge cobras next to her. There's backup dancers clearly meant to uh, represent demonic beings. And she's bragging about it and she's with her body gyrations and how they were moving. We knew exactly what that meant and what that song was about. And so... For some, they can say, oh, I did that. I'm so sorry. Oh, man, I've got to change my ways, but they're unable to because they're just sucking, just searching for life that they're not getting from God. There's other people that say, you know what? Um, I can take life in whatever way I want because, and I can glory in it. I can get away with it and I can brag about it because I can write a song and sing a song and I can, um, and I'm unwilling to change. Unable or unwilling to change and this is who Paul is talking about. And this is what you'll find in a culture, you guys. We are living in a time where people are so far away from God that there are, we don't live in Christendom anymore here in the West. Those days are over, at least as of now. We're now living in a post-Christian and anti-Christian age whereby people are increasingly becoming, as a society, black hole unbelievers as a society. And as they gasp for life and try and hold on to anything that they can get to replace from God, uh, we become spiritual barbarians as a society. These are the enemies of Christ who are unwilling, unable to change, um, and they will not come to God for that. And so Paul their minds are set on earthly things, not heavenly things. But then he goes on to his last point in verse 20 and 21. And he transitions here. He says in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body um, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, here's the good news. Paul now contrasts who we are as Christians with the enemies of Christ. And instead of being black hole unbelievers, we are now citizens. Citizens are citizens whose citizenship is in heaven. This would have meant something to the Philippian church. Because as you remember, Philippi as part of Acacia, Greece, Greece region, Philippi as a city was a Roman colony. And so uh, basically they were under the jurisdiction of Rome, but they weren't living near Rome. And so they kind of enjoyed Roman citizenship and all of the benefits of that without technically being Roman. So when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, the Philippians would have heard that and say, ah, we understand citizenship because we're living as a Roman colony. We, under, we get the benefits of Roman citizenships, but we're not Roman. But you, Paul, are saying our main citizenship is not to Rome. It is what? To the Lord. 
Our main citizenship is not even here on this earth. It is where? In heaven. One of the things I pray for uh, my children at nights occasionally is uh, one of my lines of prayer over, I mean, there's all, almost every night, if not every other night, we pray for our children, you know, um, by their bedside. And one of our prayers is that, Lord, um, thank you. May Keen, may Darcy, may Ethan um, gain great peace from knowing that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I believe that. They've all made professions of faith. Um, Ethan is thinking about getting baptized pretty soon. Um, and so um, the citizenship is in heaven. And he says, verse 20, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We await. So he's talking about the future now. Verse 21, who will in the future transform our lowly body, that's the body we have right now, to be like his glorious body. What's his glorious body? That's Jesus' glorious uh, glorified body. It's the body that he uh, manifests at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. It's the body that he had uh, when he was resurrected and he appeared to the disciples and and all of the 500 people, uh, believers, before he ascended to heaven from the time of his resurrection to his ascension. And so it's really cool because he says uh, our lowly body will be like his glorious body. And, and you think about that, Jesus' glorious body, at least that we saw on earth, his resurrected body, uh, we know the following. We know we could, they recognize Jesus, you know, maybe not in the road to Emmaus, but Afterwards, they recognize Jesus. And so we will probably recognize one another in heaven. Okay. Uh, you know, you'll have the perfect body, right? But we'll be able to probably recognize who we are. Number two, um, Jesus' body ate, smelled, looked, heard. Um, that's very possible we'll be able to do those things in heaven. Uh, number three, it's really cool because Jesus' glorious body was able to teleport, to pass through solid objects. We see this in the Gospels. And I think there's probably some kind of manipulation of all these dimensions that we have that we can't access here in our world right now. We'll be able to do stuff like that. It's super cool. And he does this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Um, let me take a two-minute theological detour right now. And then we'll close. Verse 20 and 21 talk about the resurrection of believers. Transform our lower body to be like his glorious body. We await this. It's talking about our resurrection. And we don't have time to look at this right now. You can look at it later. But when you read passages in the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 15, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, from Revelation chapter 20, as well as in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12. Okay, when you read and kind of read through those chapters and you kind of put them together, what we discover in those passages, and I'm sure many others, is the following when it comes to resurrection. Three things. Number one, believers who die. Every believer who dies from the time of Pentecost, which is the book of Acts, the birth of the church where the Holy Spirit came to dwell in people, every believer who dies from basically the book of Acts to the time that we are raptured by Christ at some point in the future, all of that's all of us here in this room who believe. Every believer who dies during that time period, two things happen. One is your spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. And secondly, you, will you and I will receive our new resurrected perfect bodies at the rapture. And, um, and so that will be reunited with our spirit. That's what the Bible teaches. Second, for every believer who's not in that time period who died, not between Pentecost and the rapture, but every believer who now died, who had died as Old Testament saints, or believers that die during the tribulation in the book of Revelation, those two areas, their spirits immediately will go to be with the Lord, but they will receive their resurrected bodies, not at the rapture, this Bible teaches, 
but they will receive the resurrected bodies that are reunited with their resurrected spirit at the second coming of Christ that is talked about in Revelation 19 and 20, etc. Third, if you are an unbeliever here, the Bible teaches that any unbeliever through all time periods, whether that's Old Testament, New Testament, the time between New Testament and now, or the time between now and the rapture, to the tribulation, to the second coming of Christ, all of that, if you're an unbeliever during basically any time period, the Bible says that your spirit will go to hell immediately if you, when you die, and you die in unbelief, but your body, your new, you will get a new resurrected body at your final judgment in Revelation 20, at the great white throne judgment. So what will happen to unbelievers is their spirit will be in hell, at the great white throne judgment, in the book of Revelation chapter 20, they will be given their own eternal body united with their fallen soul, and that new body that they get is fitted for eternal existence in hell. And I don't want to look and see what that body looks like. It's going to be pretty grotesque. Um, and so Paul, when he comes to this time, he wants to end by reminding us. And it's just like Norm said, right, during the offering time. If we're not thinking about heavenly things um, more, we're thinking maybe about too many earthly things now. Um, and when he said that, you know, during the service, I, I felt this pang of conviction in my own life. Uh, you know, uh, where does it cross a line for me where I can enjoy the things that I have now? And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Solomon said, eat, drink, enjoy your life, right? But where does it cross the line where I move from enjoyment to um, focusing so much that I'm thinking less about the things of the Lord, less about eternity, and I got to be careful on that, right? Money was, as he was do, calling us to offering, is one way of doing that. But I want to close with that, is um, you're here and um, be thinking about eternal things. Be remembering that the Lord is going to see you through whatever difficulty you're going through right now. You keep your eyes on the future on what God has for you. And, um, and imitate those who are doing that. Stay away from people who are not. Let's pray together. Fathers, we close our time together this afternoon. Thank you that um, you always know that we need an eternal perspective for our lives. Uh, all of us, it's so easy to only focus on what is happening on the here and now. May we be the type of people that um, surround ourselves with people that we can imitate in our faith. May we be wise enough, Lord, to stay away from the enemies of Christ um, who would, whose end is destruction. And may we be discerning enough, Lord, to know the difference between who to imitate and who to stay away from, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.